Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. If you've been with us the last two Sundays, you'll know that we've been preaching through the very short book of Haggai, and we've seen God call His people to repent from putting their priority on their own houses and their own lives and to build God's temple. We've seen Him promise God's presence and the future of God's coming salvation to encourage His people. And if you've gotten used to finding Haggai, you can turn there again and flip over one more page, and we're going to the book of Zechariah, which follows Haggai, again, right at the end of the Old Testament. And the background of Zechariah is the same as the background of Haggai, because God used Haggai and Zechariah to speak to the people of Israel at the same time. As we start to dig into the book, we'll see that both are speaking in the second year of Darius, and Haggai spoke in the sixth and seventh month, and then Zechariah spoke in the eighth month. Haggai spoke in the ninth month, and then Zechariah will speak in the eleventh month. So there's this dialogue as God uses both Haggai and Zechariah back and forth to speak to the people of Israel, to find and to bring the encouragement as God's people. Now, Zechariah can be a difficult book at times. It's considered something of the revelation of the Old Testament because it speaks in visions and symbols at times. But while Zechariah may be a challenge at times, it's also frequently quoted in the New Testament. It offers one of the most thorough pictures of God's salvation and His coming Messiah and the glory that will result. And so here in Zechariah, we as God's people will find great encouragement as we see what God is up to for His people. This morning, I want us to look at the first two chapters of Zechariah, but what I'd like to do, just a little different than what we often do, is I'd like to read the first six verses of chapter one, which are something of an introduction to this book, and comment on those six verses first, and then we'll go back to the text and read the remainder of chapters one and two. So if you would, turn with me to Zechariah chapter one, and we'll begin by reading verses one through six. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Father, this is your word that you've given to us, and I pray that you would speak to us this morning. Encourage and challenge our hearts for your sake. Amen. There are some things 
which I definitely do not pretend to be an expert in. And baking would be one of those. And yet, despite my lack of expertise, I think I can say with confidence one piece of advice. If you want to take something like, say, pumpkin that has very little natural sweetness and turn it into a pie that you want to eat, don't forget the sugar. Because pumpkin and nutmeg will not make a pie by themselves. If you want a good pumpkin pie, you're going to need the pumpkin, yes, but also the sugar. And as I'm sure it's clear to all of you, this is the picture that immediately came to mind when I read these first six verses this morning. Because, see, the people here were two months into their work of rebuilding the temple. They were clearing rubble. They were founding, uh, making a foundation. They were doing what God had called them to do. But in order to restore true worship of God at the temple, there were two ingredients that were necessary. Yes, they needed a physical temple, but they also need hearts that were renewed in their fear of the Lord. They needed hearts that were committed to the covenant that God made with his people, that were loyal to him in faith and obedience. If they got a temple, but not a spiritual renewal and a covenant commitment to their God, true worship would not result. And so Zechariah comes to speak to God's people. The word of the Lord comes through him and issues this statement in verse 3, which I think is a good summary of the whole book of Zechariah. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. You know, Zechariah here doesn't start with any pleasantries. He doesn't come and say, hey, you know, guys, great work, you know, building the temple. You're off to a good start. But it's one thing you might want to think about as you build here. Now, that's kind of the way I would approach something if I was bringing a difficult message to someone. But that's not what Zechariah does. He comes and he zeroes right in on their hearts. Yes, you're building the temple. Yes, you are doing what God has called you to, but your return to the Lord is not complete. The covenant, your covenant with your God and His glory is not your consuming motivation. And so return to me, says the Lord, and I will return to you. For that is what is necessary for true worship to happen in this temple. And that focus is really Zechariah's introduction in these first six verses. And the Lord makes His appeal to the people by drawing their attention to the previous generation of Israelites. You see his statement, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Why? Well, because as the Lord reminds them, he had also sent prophets to their fathers and he had warned them of their sin. But their fathers had not listened. They had not repented. They had not turned from their ways. And their fathers found out that One generation may pass away, a certain prophet may pass away, but just because a prophet passes away does not mean the word of the Lord passes away. No, while a generation passed away, God drives his point home with this question. Did not my words, which the prophet spoke, overtake your fathers? Didn't they repent and realize their error when they found themselves in exile just as I had promised? And this question hardly needs answering. Any one of the Israelites would have just had to glance to their right or left at the pile of rubble and the knocked down walls to say, oh yes, you're right. The Lord, your words did come true. You promised that if we did not repent, you would destroy our city. And you did. You said you would take us into exile. And you did. Everywhere around them, 
the stones shout that God's judgment did indeed come upon them just as he had said. And the point that God makes abundantly clear is that God does not take sin lightly. He will punish it as he says he will. And the previous generation, their fathers, proved this to be the case. And the conclusion that the Lord urges on this generation then is the obvious one. Do not ignore this word of the Lord. Do not ignore this prophet who stands before you. Return to me fully with all your hearts in all obedience, and I will return to you. Before we leave this introduction, though, I think this return to me and I will return to you is a great introduction to the book. But before we leave, I want to just draw your attention to two phrases, and I want you to tuck these two phrases in the back of your mind so that as we hear them over and over in the next 14 chapters, your memory will just jog and say, oh yeah, I was looking for that. I remember that. The first phrase and the first thing I want you to watch for is that Zechariah repeatedly affirms that everything he says is actually the word of the Lord. If you were to trace through these chapters, pay attention to how many times Zechariah says things like, and the word of the Lord came, or and thus says the Lord, or therefore declares the Lord. And one might expect that a prophet is bringing the word of the Lord, but Zechariah states it over and over. In fact, one commentator notes That over the course of these 14 chapters, once every five or six verses, Zechariah claims that what he is saying is actually what God is saying. He's driving home for his people again and again that this is God's word. And so he will follow through, both in judgment and in the blessing that is to come. So tuck that, keep that in the back of your mind and watch for the way this emphasizes that these are the words of the Lord. Second, I want to just draw your attention to the primary name that Zechariah uses for the Lord throughout this book. Over and over again, Zechariah refers to the Lord as the Lord of hosts. And when an author uses the same name for God over and over, it's worth asking, why? What is he calling our attention to? And the Lord of hosts is a name that emphasizes the power and the authority of the Lord. It's something like the phrase, the commander-in-chief the one who has all authority over the hosts. Well, what are the hosts? Well, the hosts can include all of creation. Deuteronomy chapter 4, 19 says that the Lord of hosts is the Lord over the sun, the moon, and all the hosts of heaven. All creation is the host the Lord is Lord over. Psalm 103 talks about God as the Lord over the hosts of the ministering spirits. In other other words, the Lord is the Lord of all of the angelic armies and the angelic powers, according to Psalm 103. The Lord of hosts also is used to refer to God as the commander-in-chief of his people, of the armies of Israel, who overcomes any foe. So you might remember David, the shepherd boy, As he faces down Goliath, who taunts him and says, I'm going to feed you to the birds. David's response is, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. And so the Lord of hosts, this name is referring to God. He's calling our attention to the God who holds all power and all authority over all creation, all beings, all the armies of Israel. And it's this God, the God of all power and authority, who comes and speaks through Zechariah, who comes and stands and calls to Israel throughout this book. 
while they rebuild amidst the rubble of Jerusalem. He calls to them, return to me and I will return to you. So tuck that in the back of your mind and notice how again and again we're called to the Lord of hosts and who he is. Well, that's our introduction, if you will, in these first six verses. Let's turn again to the text of Zechariah, chapters 1 and 2. And what we'll see is that the night of the 24th day of the 11th month was a pretty busy night for Zechariah. Because the first six chapters of Zechariah spell out eight or nine visions, depending on how you count them, that all come to Zechariah on the same night. Maybe you remember one or maybe two dreams you have over the course of the night, but here is a series of visions. Visions aren't a a genre that we've looked at a lot, but imagine these visions as picture after picture that the Lord stacks up to show Zechariah what he is doing for his people. In fact, as I was talking to one friend about these visions in Zechariah, we agreed that reading through these six chapters of Zechariah is going to be like picking up Okay, reference to old classic toy before five-year-olds just picked up a cell phone here. The old Fisher-Price Viewmaster. Any of you remember the Viewmaster? It was like a pair of binoculars, plastic binoculars, and you'd insert a circular slideshow into it, and you'd click through the slides, and, and each slide had a different theme. There was like the dinosaur slide, and you'd click through different pictures of dinosaurs or surfire animals. Well, reading through these visions here in Zechariah is like picking up the Viewmaster and be given, being given a slide entitled, What God is About to Do for His People, and being given this series of pictures that show how God is about to act. So what I want to do is read the rest of chapter 1 in the short chapter 2 to see the first three of these pictures which belong together. So if you have your Bibles, let's read together. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat and the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. And then I said, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. 
And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward. And another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to the young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around her, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. He who touches you touches the apple of my eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Now when we look at visions like this, it's very comforting that Zechariah, when he sees his vision, says, what in the world is going on? You know, what are these things? He needs help interpreting what's happening. And as we work through these visions, one of the things that will be important for us is not to be distracted by trying to interpret details that are incidental to the picture of God that God is drawing, and to focus on the the main point that God is making in this vision, which Zechariah almost always makes clear. So let's take a minute to work through these three pictures that God gives us and focus on their main point. In the first image, we begin, God shows us a man on horseback, surrounded by other horses, whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And it seems most likely that these other horses are also have riders on them, since they give a report. And I don't think we're supposed to see talking horses here, but rather that the horses have carried riders throughout the world, and they've come to bring a report. And the report on what's happening in the world is that all the world is at rest, or at ease. And they give this report to the man, the the primary man in the myrtle tree, the one who's standing there in the myrtles. And verse 11 further identifies this man as the angel of the Lord. And if you think back over the Old Testament for a minute, you'll remember that the angel of the Lord is a figure who shows up at a number of key places in the Old Testament. And he's a figure that that causes some, some question. Because while most angels refuse worship, the angel of the Lord accepts worship. And the angel of the Lord speaks to God, but he also speaks as God. And it becomes clear as you look at the angel of the Lord that he himself is a divine figure and yet is also distinct in some way from the Lord of hosts. And for these reasons, most commentators will identify the angel of the Lord as the second person of the Trinity, a pre-incarnate 
appearance by the Son of God. And I would agree with this, and assuming this identification is correct, verse 12 gives us this beautiful image where the angel of the Lord prays for his people, who intercedes for his people. Here we have a prelude to Jesus, the Son of God, who comes to intercede for his people. And he cries out, how long will you, O Lord, have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? But this prayer, as the angel of the Lord makes this plea on behalf of Israel, this prayer sets up the main point of the vision Because the main point of the vision which comes in response to the angel of the Lord's prayer is this. God is announcing a great reversal that's coming. The patrols have seen that the nations of the earth are at ease. But God is actually exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For though it's true that God had used them to bring about judgment, they had exceeded that and had themselves brought cruelty and disaster on the lands and have earned God's wrath. And God is about to act in his anger. But for Israel and Jerusalem, to the ones who are still bearing the consequences of their sin, who are still struggling in the rubble as vassals under a foreign power, God announces that for them a great reversal is coming as well. Because God says, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And here God announces that he is about to act He describes his love for his city and his zeal, which is aroused for them and will lead to this reversal. And God announces specifically that he's going to do three things. He says, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house, that is my temple, will be built. He promises the rebuilding of the temple. Then he says, the measuring line shall be stretched out. That means that the city itself will be measured and rebuilt. And then he says, that my cities will again overflow with prosperity. And so here, God is announcing something that does not meet the appearances. If we're looking at this first picture, God says, sure, Israel, in your day things look bleak. It doesn't look like God cares for you in prosperous and glorious ways. But appearances right now are not reality. God will judge the nations who appear on top. But God's jealous love is still for Jerusalem, and he is about to act on her behalf. And if we look at history, we can see this prophecy fulfilled in some ways. Within 150 years, the temple had been rebuilt. The walls of the city had been rebuilt. And a measure of prosperity had returned to Jerusalem that it had not seen for many years. But of course, 150 years after this time period didn't bring about the full fulfillment of this prophecy. For the full fulfillment of this prophecy, we would need to turn to Revelation chapter 21, where God shows the new Jerusalem coming down, this new city of glory and wealth and beauty, whose temple is the very presence of God himself dwelling with them. And so we see that through Christ, we have been, had this promise renewed to us, and we get a window into Zechariah's first picture here. The reversal is coming. God will judge the nations, and he will act for his city. We'll move on to vision number two. Click ahead to the second picture we're given. Here we see four horns. And if you were to read the Old Testament, you would see that horns are used over and over again as symbols of power, symbols of nations who have authority. And so Zechariah sees four horns. 
that represent nations that have scattered Judah. And it seems most likely that these four horns don't represent four specific nations, but rather represent the nations as a whole who have opposed God's people. You could think of the nations from the four corners of the earth, perhaps. But having seen these four horns, these powers that have crushed God's people, in the vision, God then reveals four craftsmen. And we might ask, well, how is it that Zechariah knew they were craftsmen? And most commentators suggest it was probably because of the tools that they were carrying as these craftsmen come to crush these horns. These craftsmen that the Lord is bringing are going to terrify the horns that had been opposed to Israel and cast them down and crush them. And so the second picture in the slide picks up on the comment in the first picture that God is going to judge the nations that he's angry with. And again, we could see a short-term fulfillment to this. Every nation that had opposed Israel was in its turn defeated and overthrown in the course of history. But of course, there's also the long-term fulfillment as we look ahead to Revelation 20 and its promise that all God's enemies will be defeated and thrown into the lake of fire and God's saints will be avenged for the evil that they have suffered. So here we have these first two pictures. But if you've got your view master with you, click ahead to picture number three now. Here in picture number three in chapter two, a man with a measuring line comes onto the scene to measure the city of Jerusalem. This in itself is an encouragement, for it means that the city will be rebuilt. It will be measured out and rebuilt. But then the angel who's, who's serving as a tour guide, if you will, we've got this angel who's kind of taking Zechariah on this tour of these visions. He goes and talks to another angel and receives news of hope beyond hope. Because Jerusalem is not just going to be rebuilt. Such a multitude of people and livestock are going to come again to dwell in God's city that walls are going to be impossible. They're going to be a city without walls because the multitude of the blessing of God and His people will not fit within walls. Now, maybe some of those in Israel would say, well, wait a second, a city without walls, that is kind of frightening. You're a little vulnerable if you don't have any walls around you. But then you see in verse 5 that the Lord promises, I will be a wall, a wall of fire around you. Who needs a stack of stones to protect you when the very presence and glory of the Lord of hosts dwells with you and is the wall protecting you and surrounding you? What a vision of hope for God's people. And it's in light of this announcement that Jerusalem will be inhabited and will grow beyond expectations and size and blessing and glory, that the Lord issues a summons in verse 6. You know, it had been a great step of faith for these Israelites who had returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. They had left the prosperity of one of the richest cities on earth to come back to Jerusalem, which had been overthrown and destroyed. But now, in light of this vision, the Lord calls to all of Israel. He says, up, up, flee from the land of the north, leave Babylon, and come again to Jerusalem. For his city and his people are the apple of his eye. They are his delight, and they will be guarded and blessed by the Lord. But I think the the climactic image of this slide has to come in verse 11 where it says that many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. 
And if you were to read back over the Old Testament, you would find this phrase of joining themselves to the Lord used several times for those who were not Israelites, foreigners, but who would come and who would submit themselves to the covenant of the Lord, who would be circumcised and would in faith submit themselves to the Lord as the Lord of hosts of all the world. And so here, here then is the grand vision that the Bible lays out. Abraham will be a father to many nations. And it will be too small a thing for God's Messiah to save Israel alone. So he will be a light to the Gentiles as well, who will join themselves to God's people. So that on that last day, God will call all of his people from every tribe and tongue and nation, from every corner of the world, and gather them as one people who will worship together forever in the glory of the Lord's presence. You see the glory of this vision that the Lord is casting for his people. No wonder that it ends with, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. The Lord of hosts, the Almighty and the majestic commander-in-chief of all creation, is about to act and bring about this reversal. Punishment on those who have opposed his people, but blessing upon blessing, hope upon hope, for all who are the Lord's, for Israel and for those from all nations who put their faith in him through his son Jesus. Well, as we come to the end of this passage, I want to take a minute this morning to draw out a few words of application. First, let's jump back to those first words in verses 1 through 6. The opening words of Zechariah are spoken to Israelites, and I think it's worth remembering that these Israelites would have thought of themselves as the good Israelites, the obedient ones. They were the ones who left Babylon and came back in faith. They were the ones who had obeyed Haggai's call to begin rebuilding. But it's them that the Lord comes to and says, return to me, says the Lord, and I will return to you. In other words, there are other areas of disobedience in their life. Their hearts are not fully his. Their glory is not their prime, his glory is not their primary concern. And so they're summoned. Remember the message from Haggai last week. One act of obedience is not contagious. It doesn't cover over other acts of disobedience. And so they're summoned to return to the Lord with their whole heart and life. And this is a message each one of us needs to hold up to our hearts this morning. You are here in church or you're watching church online. And perhaps that's an act of obedience, maybe even a a fruit of the Spirit, and that is good. But that fact should not keep us from examining our hearts, from holding our hearts up to the Word of God, and examining for areas of other disobedience, for areas that our hearts are still distracted by our own lives, that are motivated by what I'm doing for God, or out of a sense of duty, rather than for a love of Him and His glory who has called us to Himself for hearts that perhaps are in the routine of coming to church, but have not submitted fully to the Lord. We too should reflect with Zechariah's audience on God's gracious invitation this morning. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Second note of application, I'm struck by the Lord's call to Israel in this third vision to flee from Babylon. Do you see the starkness of his call? Up! up. It's like, get up and get out of Babylon. Flee and return to Zion, my city. 
This was a summons to act in faith, to leave the comforts of Babylon because a greater blessing awaited God's people in the city of God's choosing. This is the same image that the author of Hebrews picks up on in chapter 11 when he talks about Moses and says that by faith Moses would rather abandon all the treasures of Egypt because he was seeking a city that was prepared by God, a city with lasting foundations. I wonder if we would apply this call and hear this as a call for you and I. This world and all of its comforts is passing away. And God summons us to leave the world and to stake our hope in the city he has promised to protect. The city he has promised to bless with his presence. And to join the nations who will come in faith in Jesus to worship him forever. Maybe I could ask it this way or state it this way. As we think about our hearts and and the things around us, all of the comforts of this world and the things in this world that we go to for security. I could put it this way. Siding with the world or clinging to its comforts or securities betrays such a small expectation of God's blessings. Because if we were to think about it, Do we really believe that God's blessings are not going to be as good as something I can buy off Amazon? Do we really believe that God's blessings will not provide as much comfort for us as the acceptance we can receive from those around us? Do we really believe that God's blessings will fall short of the success I can find in my job? I don't think we do, but but read these visions in Zechariah. Read them. Believe God's promises. God gives us great encouragement to jump up and to flee this world in the expectation of what is to come for all those who trust in God. Well, finally, last note of application for us this morning. God has called us to repent and to return to him. But Zechariah's words make it abundantly clear that the primary inertia of these visions, if you will, the primary foundation of these blessings is God's own abundant mercy and love for his people. Just reread some of the phrases that we heard here in Zechariah 1 and 2. I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem. I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. Jerusalem is the apple of my eye. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. I come and I will dwell in your midst. See, our future hope does not rest on the perfections of our responses, but on the perfection of God's sovereign and initiating and steadfast love and faithfulness to his people. And so as we read these, as we hear this, may we pray that God's people in Israel and God's people to every nation and all around the world would come to him through faith in Jesus as we hear this vision of what is still to come and the glory that is our hope in Jesus Christ. God has promised that he will act. He will be a wall of fire around his people. That his people are looking ahead to a city of prosperity and blessing because of the presence of the Lord and the fellowship of all nations who are united him through Jesus Christ. And so may we be warned of our sin and the certainty of judgment that will come if we do not hide in Christ. But may we be encouraged by this tremendous hope if we are in Jesus, no matter what challenge may face us this week. Let's pray. Father, how I thank you for these visions that you have given us, these pictures that you have drawn that show us what you are doing for your people. And Father, as we stand 
today, some 2,500 years after Zechariah. Father, we have now seen Jesus Christ come and die and rise again. We've seen the beginning of your fulfillment of these. But we too look ahead in hope. We too look ahead to the day when you will fully return and all your glory and all your presence will dwell with your people from every tribe and tongue and nation. How we look ahead to that day. And Father, may the glory and the hope of that day cause our hearts to jump up and flee this world and to flee sin and return to you with a whole heart of faith and obedience. And may we do it for the further glory of your name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.